And welcome again to worship this morning. If we haven't met before, my name is Rob Jacobson. And I would like to start with a question, not a hard question. Maybe it is, but I don't think it is. Uh, What's one dream that you have for your life? What's one dream you have for your life? Something that you think about all the time or something that you um, say, you know, I really hope by the end of whatever that ending point is that I can, uh, if I could only have one dream for my life, this may seem small, but to me it's pretty large. It's the power to avoid one question. Just one Just one, it happens all the time. It happened last week. I was at a new appointment, meeting someone new, which I usually really like, except when it's really, really new. And uh, so I went into this store or this place, and um, this lady looked at my little sheet, and she goes, well, hello, Rob. So what do you do? It's a showstopper. Well, uh, you could say I teach. Uh, I pray a lot. I guide. I... I sometimes have a really, really hard time just saying, I'm a pastor. Because inevitably, the person looks at me and goes, oh. (laughs) I don't know what to do with that. If I had one thing, this is what I would avoid. And they always seem to bring up, I rarely hear, I love my church. Sometimes, often, I hear, oh, One time I went to a church and insert bad church experience. Now, my guess is, if you're human and you've been to a church, then sometime you've had a bad church experience. The first time I went to church in college was the second weekend. We won't talk about the first weekend because there are smaller children around. But the second weekend, I went to college and a friend of mine and I went and we rounded out the congregation at five. And you don't want to hear me sing. So I was trying to avoid being heard in a congregation of five and participating. It was pretty challenging to do that. I don't know if you've ever been to the, uh, you get a special name tag if you're a visitor church. Or the, why don't we stand up and have you greet the person and I'll interview you in front of 200 people church. Been to one of those. Um, We've also got the dress code church. Or one of my favorites, the That's My Seat Church. (laughs) Now, my guess is you have one, too. Uh, I know in our three years, we've probably given out a few church experience, bad church experiences, because I've been told about them. Uh, And they're painful. They're awful. And, And yet, God says, this is my first best and only plan, to use this group of people known as Jesus followers to bring the good news to the whole world. And yet, bad church experiences happen all the time. Why? Today we're going to look at one of the worst church experiences of all time ever. So I'm really excited about that. But the story will not only point out what we need, I think it also gives us insight into why the church of all places seems to lack the one essential ingredient, grace. So there was a man in his late 20s who was going to go to church. The greeter asked him about his family. 
So he started talking about his family, and he kind of realized that the greeter was trying to figure out what part of town he was from, or where his family was from, or what part of the United States he was from, or if he was actually a legal citizen of the United States. And so then the greeter, after finishing that, directed the man uh, to an usher who seated him in the section designated for single men. He sang some of the songs, and he recited some of the Bible verses and the lines from the verses that he knew. After that, uh, no one invited him to Applebee's after service, so he walked home. He, um, it was kind of getting dark, and there's a gang that jumped out of the trees and attacked him, beat him, stole his cell phone, stole his wallet, and most of his clothes, and left them, him lying there, limp, bloody, kind of half dead on the sidewalk. Now, sheer luck would have it that literally 15 minutes later, the pastor is riding his fixie motorcycle, fixie bicycle down the street, kind of off in his own little world, has to swerve to miss the guy that's lying there, looks back and keeps going. Half hour later, worship leader, wearing her tights, running tights, because it's getting a little chilly, iPod in, you know, kind of, praising, song, running, sees the man, stops, looks, walks, shocked, and keeps going. That would be a bad church experience, would it not? Now, we've been in this little series called Essential. We've been looking at, we spent last week looking at um, what are the three kind of If we had to boil it down to three things that we see, there's probably a few more, but just for the sake of remembering who we are, who God has called us to be, and how we are to be the church, what are three things we've got to remember and we've got to practice? We talked last week about this first one being this word trust. We talked about jumping out of the boat, having this leaky boat and bailing the water and bailing the water and being exhausted. And if we could jump out of the boat and trust that Jesus is with us to come underneath the boat and patch the hole to give us a different rhythm to life. This is a key to put our faith in this God who reveals himself in Jesus. So this idea of trust. Next week is this idea of focus, but we won't go there now. But today, it's grace. This word that is probably the most essential ingredient of the good news. Now, what is grace? Uh, People have defined grace as unmerited favor. Uh, I like to say it's getting what you don't deserve. Grace is not just a brother giving a kidney to a sister and another brother giving one when one runs out. Uh, But grace is a 50-year-old man that's a construction worker in New York named Wesley uh, Autry. Don't know if you heard about him. A few years ago, he was standing on the subway platform with his two young kids, four and six, waiting for a train as they were coming, passing by. And at that moment, a person next to him or near him on the platform has a seizure, falls into the tracks. And as he is standing there, and as the guy is lying there, they see the lights from the subway coming down. Without even thinking about any regard for himself or his little kids, The guy jumps in the tracks to pick him up. 
except he realizes as he is struggling to pull him out of the way that he cannot get him out, not just off the tracks, but up onto the platform. And the train's coming fast, it is not stopping, and so he realizes this, and he presses himself into a hollowed-out space between the rails, spreads his own body over this man, who he doesn't know. As the train comes by, inches from his body, literally leaving grease marks on his knitted cap that he is wearing. The train goes past, screeches to a halt later, and there's a commotion, and he yells up, Can you tell the two little girls that their daddy's okay? That's, that's grace. That's experiencing God's love and embrace when we least deserve it or even expect it. But what gets in the way of grace? Because people were shocked. I mean, this Wesley guy, he became a national hero. People were moved by his bravery and selflessness and lack of concern for himself in this situation. They, they called him the, the subway superman. They called him the Harlem hero. One news station really got it right. There was, no, there was no reason why this man should show that much concern. Nothing. Other than grace. Grace that wasn't expected. Like I said, one news station got it right. Noting his act of courage, mercy, and grace. The title on the, on the news line was, Good Samaritan Saves Man on Subway Tracks. What gets in the way of grace? Maybe you could say it another way. What kills our experience of grace? What kills our desire to give grace? And don't forget the first question I asked you. What's one dream you have for your life? I think there's probably a lot of grace killers, but the ones that I want to look at today briefly are from Luke 10, 25 through 37. And um, there are three that I see in this story or this situation. Remember, we looked last week at the story right before this. uh, And then next week, we'll look at the story right after this. The writer's a smart man. He's inspired by God, but he orders these things to set up some themes. He orders these things to create some some things that that we can see. It's not like they're hidden. It's just that we sometimes, when we look at them just story by story, chunk by chunk, we we miss them. So, So this is a setting where Jesus is, is teaching. Verse 25 says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This is a pretty common practice in Jewish circles of teaching. The teacher would often stand and the the students would often sit and someone would stand to question. They were calling out kind of their understanding of the law and wanting to challenge that person in a debate-like fashion. There's, There's probably not a malicious intent, although Jesus has been 
uh, expanding his definitions a little bit, which we'll get to later. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? The expert said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Deuteronomy 6.5. And love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.8. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the expert in the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he was attacked by robbers on that trip, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and he went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, Jewish temple worker from a special tribe, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But when a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine in his cuts. Then he put the man on his own donkey, and he brought him to an inn to take care of him. All day. The next day, he took out two denarii, about two days' worth of wages for a day worker. So take your day's salary or day's wage times two and figure out how much it would be for you. And he gave them to the innkeeper and said, Look after him. And when I return... I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus says to the expert of the law, Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by robbers? The expert of the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Go and do likewise. Instead of subway tracks, it's a dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Very commonly traveled, 17 miles, about uh, 25,000 or 2,500 feet above sea level down to uh, minus 800, minus 600 feet below sea level. Takes pretty much a day to do the whole journey. And uh, as you can see, there's, there's not a lot of shoulder on that road. And so this whole idea that someone would be attacked here is about as common as someone being pickpocketed in New York City. About as common as someone being pushed over in New York and probably some rude comment coming past. Get out of the way. This happened all the time. So the story itself isn't the shocking thing. The shocking part is that the two people who are almost required by the law to help, the two people that have been trained to help, the two people that live and work in helping professions, do nothing. The people who would have heard this would have been shocked. 
grace was killed. What is the first grace killer? I might simply say it's too busy. I'm too busy. Now, they weren't going up to Jerusalem. The priest had likely finished his week or two-week duty, and that's 24-7. That's kind of round-the-clock rotation. If you're a nurse or your doctor, you understand this. He had done all the things he needed to do. Maybe he was just tired. Maybe his wife was like, I hate this lifestyle. You're gone every, every couple of months for a week, and this just, you know, you're always helping people. Maybe, maybe the priest is used to seeing desperate situations. And he's like, I just can't do it anymore. Who knows? We don't, we don't know, and that's not the point to know, but imagine all the things you need to do. Right? We're all busy. But, but this guy's margins may have been just completely packed. And uh, a friend of mine told me this. Margin is probably the place where grace grows best. Margin is the place where grace grows best. Think about the pace of life that you live or that I live or that we live in 2013, right? And I realize I'm going to alienate a few people really quick uh, that are younger, but now 2013, right? 2003, okay? We still have iPods. You know, we have the internet, but we don't have social media. There's no Twitter. There's no Facebook, we don't have any anxiety about what our friends are posting or who's invited to who because we had to use paper invitations. Or maybe there was evites then. But, um, okay, so 19, 2003, 1993. There's no internet unless you're the vice president. Um, there's, no, uh, there's no iPod. I mean, there's Walkman and CDs. There's no Blu-ray. There's no Netflix. There's no home entertainment other than maybe a color TV with a VCR if you're a ritzy person. 1993. 1983. Woo! Thriller, boom boxes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But no DVDs, again. No, um, oh, that's, you know, the home entertainment, sorry. The home entertainment was the color TV in 1983. 1973. I don't know, did we have electricity then? (laughs) Sorry. I just made that one. You'd think the pace would be slower, right? 1973, two Princeton professors, I think one, I know one was in the psychology department, I think one was in the theology department, they decided to do an experiment on what they knew about busyness, the Bible, and grace. And they took 40 theology students and they created kind of a crisis situation. The students were all told that they were going to be interviewed about church work, helping profession, what they thought about vocational ministry, and 20 of them were going to um, reflect on one specific question. The other 20 were going to reflect on the parable of the Good Samaritan. So they explained that they had to come in and do these interviews, so they came in to do the interview, and when they went in to do the interview, they said, well, you know, some stuff changed, and we have to reschedule the interview. It's not here. It's actually over here, across campus, where they told them, like, a five-minute window where they were going to have to briskly walk really quickly, and they said, you know, we just kind of want you to think on your feet. We want you to give about a five-minute talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan. They're all theology students. 
They can all do this one off the back of their hand, but it's, you know, you don't have a lot of time, and literally one of the people went, oh, yeah, you better hurry. All 20 of these people. Now, luck would have it, or they, as they planned it, that they, were pl- they placed a dirty, dingy beggar in between the buildings in a way that they all had to go, in literally a small place. One of the students actually stepped over the person. It was so close. Not one of the 20. Or, I'm not sure. They said virtually no difference between the students who were going to just speak on some random topic and the students who are going to speak on the parable of this good spirit. Didn't make any difference. The information was not enough. Or was too much, or it didn't matter. The information was not the problem. It was the busyness. And that was in 1973. Now think about your life. When somebody gives you their most valuable resource, which I could argue in today's world is time, how do you feel? When somebody gives you their time and they sit with you and they encourage you or they train you or they listen to you, don't you feel something? I think it goes back to that Harry Chaplin song. Uh, I don't know when, but I know we'll get together soon, son. I know we'll have a good time then. Cats in the cradle. But then never becomes now. And absent parents create angry, insecure kids who can't forgive and have a hard time loving. Busyness kills grace. Maybe the most amazing grace is simply time together, which has to start by getting our margins back. Ask somebody who knows you well, how can I do this? If this is a hard thing for you, and this is, this is a hard thing for me. Hard. When you see and hear something, because all those students, all those theology students saw and heard the same thing, very, very few actually did something with what they saw and what they heard. Grace killer number two. I just call this one too religious. I'm too religious. Jesus never came to become a religion. I mean, we call Christianity a religion, but that's not totally accurate if you think about what religion is. Religion is me working hard and me performing well or me sacrificing strategically so that a god or multiple gods can give me what I want. That's religion. Religion is kind of like a point system. And though many religions hold up grace and compassion as a value, if compassion requires that I get my hands dirty, if compassion requires that my clean outfit gets soiled, then I'm out. I'm going to walk right by the person. I'm going to walk right by the pain. Especially if that means I'm going to lose points in my religious system. Now, certainly, there were laws that talked about cleanliness and stuff, and, you know, that a Jewish person was not supposed to uh, touch a dead corpse. And we don't know if the guy looked 
actually dead, or if he was, we know he wasn't dead, but he could have looked pretty dead. The point is that, that the Jewish scriptures were clear that if someone was hurting, that you were called to help them. Life-giving, not life-depleting. And so there's no excuse here for them. The Jewish temple worker and the priest walk right past because they had forgotten their unbelievable, grace-saturated invitation to be in a relationship with God, because that's what Judaism was, into a cold, callous religion. Religion at its core might just simply mean it's my attempt to save myself. And yet, Christianity is at its core is my willingness to admit that I'm in trouble and that I need help. I can't do a thing to fix it. So I'm just going to open my trembling hands to the possibility that there's a God who might show me grace, unmerited favor that I don't deserve. And that is the good news. That this unimaginable, daily, eternal grace is available to all who admit they are literally dying for it. Maybe you've never heard the good news because a religion killed it. But let me ask you this. If you think about it, you're going to go to work or you're going to go to school or you're going to go hang out with people who like, don't spend a lot of time in church and you were to ask them, hey, categorically, would you say the church is more inclusive or exclusive? What do you think they might say? Exclusive? Well, I would agree. And here's what Judaism looked like. Judaism was a highly structured and stratified religion by the time of Jesus. You had the priests that had the highest calling, the Levites who were part of this special tribe who could work in the temple. Then you had the regular Jews. Then you had the tax collectors, outcasts, sinners, um, people that were kind of involved in, uh, oh, um, transactions that we'll just leave at that. involving bodies. And so those people usually didn't go to church. And then, of course, you had these Samaritans, which were the half-breed people from years past that hated each other. It's worse than in Myanmar with the Muslims and the Buddhists who are just fighting each other, who have movements springing up of, this isn't about hating anyone else. It's just about protecting our religion. They put stickers up in their windows like, I serve Buddhists. You can set, you can, if you're Buddhist, you can come and, and you can give your business to fellow Buddhists. We're not saying we don't serve Muslims. We're just letting people know. This is... Samaritans and Jew hatred is alive and well in other forms. But Luke has got a plan. Luke comes on the scene and claims to be the Messiah through his reciting of Isaiah 61. After this, that's Luke 4, after that, he goes out... He doesn't go to the temple. If Jesus were to come back, I don't think he would hang out at church. And he goes 
and he skips right over the priests. And he probably skips right over the Levites. I mean, you could make a claim that, you know, when he was 12, hanging out at the temple, that maybe he spent a little time there. But when he's an adult and he comes on the scene, he goes into the synagogues, and he starts with the Jews, the third ring out. And he spends a lot of time with the outcasts, the tax collectors, and the sinners. And now we get to Luke 9 and Luke 10, and now he's spending time with Samaritans. And you know what's going to happen at the end? Chapter 2, Acts, he's going to the Gentiles. It's like, for Jesus, there's no line. That's good. The system stood up to test Jesus. The expert of the law wanted to test Jesus because the way he was interpreting the law seemed to say, Jesus, you're not talking about where the line is. And so, hey, Jesus, what is, what, how do I inherit eternal life? You tell me, be a Jew, right? No. He, he says, what are you reading the law? The guy's like, oh, okay, wait, fine. Okay, love God, love others the way I should love myself or treat myself. Okay, but how far does the line go? Where does neighbor stop? That's what, the, that's what the lawyer's asking. How far out does it go? Because I want to hear you say something that goes against the law so that I can call you on it. Because you, you're doing things and saying things and, and interpreting things that are concerning. Now, Jesus does things that all the other rabbis do. He links the scriptures together. He brings it back. But again, this guy wants to know who's in and who's out. How far does this love or mercy or grace reach? Because someone's saying, I want to draw it here. And if you draw it here, that's not here, then I'm out. Other people are saying, wait, 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 wait. If you draw it here, that's too far. That's too far. I think I'm out. You like that? I feel like I'm doing jumping jacks. Jesus, and I've, I've had conversations like this. Oh, it's painful. Painful conversations. And, and Jesus is saying, you're all asking the wrong questions. You're all having the wrong conversations. Now, Jesus, of course, is Jewish. The lawyer is Jewish. All those listening are probably Jewish. The priests are Jewish. The Levites are Jewish. They're a special kind of Jew. The injured man is probably Jewish. And so if this was just, hey, love others, go and do likewise, we'd be done. But then Jesus wouldn't have inserted the Samaritan into the story. He would have made the Samaritan be the injured man and say, oh, look, see, Jews, even, even go and do likewise, even to people kind of outside your circle. That's what it's about. It's a good example. No, that's not it. If it was, then he wouldn't have said it the way he did. The injured man would not have even wanted help from the Samaritan. If he was alive enough to, to recognize what was happening, he would say, no, I'd rather die. That's how messed up the system was. That's why this is the wrong conversation. See, Jesus puts a guy in the story who sees and hears 
and does something with it that doesn't recite the Jewish law twice a day like the Jews did, who doesn't know the law like these Jews did, and he just lives it out, he acts it out. You can just picture who this would be today. I tried to think about it a little bit. I'm sorry if I offend you right now, but the guy's probably immoral. He's probably got a record. He's probably driving a Harley because, you know, Harleys, they're just messed up. He's probably just come from a strip club or something. He's got tattoos everywhere. He's wearing a born-to-kill leather jacket, black too. He's an outsider. If I just described your dad, I'm really sorry. Think of something worse. He's outside of whatever the line is. That's my point. And that's the guy that's living out grace. The fact is that someone who's rejected is the one who shows mercy. That, that, that just throws, that's like, whoa, hold the phone, stop the story. We can't just go out and do this. That's the point. We can't. We can't do it. That's why people were shocked by this Wesley Autry guy. Because that act of courage is so against our human nature. I got a four and six-year-old. Someone could take them. Or they could jump down on the tracks too or die. I don't, I just, no, it goes exactly against who we are. That's grace killer number three. Too much self. Now, we learn from our own bad church experiences that busy lives with no room for reflection and spontaneity can't do compassionate help. They start to make us less gracious people. And we know that the temptation to save ourselves or morally justify ourselves or draw boxes or write lines about who's in and who's out or become very religious, they kill any spirit of grace. But at the center of both of those things, I'm too busy or I'm too religious, is three words. Too much self. It shows up in a variety of ways. Pride, insecurity, worry, boasting, judging, greed, I actually found uh, six ways that you can tell that you're too selfish. Yeah, um, you like being in control and find it difficult to compromise. Giving and sharing does not come easily to you. You have a hard time putting others' needs first or your partner's needs first. You hear constructive criticism as attack. You become moody when others have the spotlight. And forgiving others is difficult. If that's not enough, I've, I've got more. Uh, the one that you'll you get to the end of the list and go, okay, I think everyone's selfish. Now, if you hear self and you're kind of introverted, this might come out this way. Oh, I, I, I don't want to step out like that because if I step out like that, it might be really uncomfortable and I'm a little bit self-conscious about that. Okay? Now, if you're an extreme extrovert, then self comes out in like, uh, you didn't even see this guy on the side of the road because you're busy on your cell phone talking to someone else or you're on a date and you're like, well, enough about me. I've talked about me the whole time. Why don't you talk about me now? <laughs> but that's how it works. Whatever grace killer it is, it's often the people that, that are so in obvious need of grace 
whose heart seemed to receive it first. Jesus said to much who have been forgiven, they love much. What happens to us? Maybe that's why Jesus went to the outside circles. Because he knew if you spend time with those who, who understood their moral bankruptcy, they know they'd recognize grace. They know they'd, need, they'd have the need. They wouldn't deny their need. They certainly would understand the kind of restoration that religion couldn't give or a busy life of accomplishing couldn't offer, or a life of self-focus or self-indulgence couldn't bring. And let's not forget who's telling the story. Think about it as we wrap up. Jesus is telling the story about receiving grace, about to have the worst church experience ever, even worse than this guy. You might say this is the the essential. Think about it. Jesus grew up in a community who never embraced him. I mean, people called him uh, names. Uh, bastard, probably. Um, he, he showed people in church leadership, who they were by asking questions that cut to their hearts, who they kind of ostracized him, not to cut down their religion, just to challenge them to turn from their pride. But see, he challenged the religious community to, uh, to love and to show grace, and these people were taking pride in how they were avoiding sinners, and he didn't fit into the church culture, and he didn't behave according to their standards, and yet he spoke with an authority that drew people in. And when the religious people got to the height of their craziness, they said, he's got to go has to end. And they mocked him, and they lied about him, and they betrayed him, and they spit on his face. And they didn't stop there. They stripped him of his clothes. They whipped him until he was unrecognizable. They took his naked body and they nailed it to wooden beams. They lifted him up in the air as an example of their religiosity and authority their power. And Jesus not once, not once opened his mouth. Not once did he rebuke them. Not once did he call them out. He just said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's what grace looks like. What's your dream for your life? Jesus' dream for his life was to die. He sat up in the Trinity, in the Godhead. I don't know how that works. God, the Father, Son, Spirit. And he's like, I know what I'm going to do. This is my dream. I'm going to come to earth and I'm going to show them what grace is. I'm going to show them what you're like, God. And then I know I'm going to die. But if I do, they will come back into life with me. All those lines will be erased. Grace. Have we missed it? And if you have, guess what? His grace is big enough to change it. That was his dream. That was his life. That this unexpected, unbelievable display of grace would pick us up off the side of the road, would heal our wounds, would pay for the medicine that we couldn't afford, and bring us back to life. Are you alive today?
What does God need to say to you? What do you need to hear from him? Let's pray. God, you have made us alive. We can't just stop and speed over that. We were dead on the side of the road. We've been passed over. And yet, you have picked us up. You have paid for the medicine. You have tended our wounds. By your grace, God, may we never cheapen it, soften it, or, or make it something it's not. Help us to live in the reality and rhythm of your grace, God. Amen.